In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the earth. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Uh, Not at all to equate me with God, but just for a second to give us an experience and a reminder of, of how the Bible begins, how things got kicked off, that there was darkness, these verses that we know so well, but this subtle thing that is incredibly important, the first cause that entered the universe was God's word. We weren't looking at things, we weren't experiencing things, we weren't feeling things. The first thing to cause was God's word. So that brings us this morning uh, to this part of our series, Not Alone, the Bible, God's Word. As we examine these uh, gifts and these tools and these support systems that God has given us, uh, this morning we are looking at the, the Bible, which I thought was interesting this morning as, as we've gone through this series. This is the first of the tools that God's given us that we can actually handle. Right? We don't really see God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. We've got angels and we've got prayer, but now we've got this book That he's given us. And it's this fascinating thing. If you only know two things about Christianity, you probably know that it has something to do with Jesus and that they have this book that they're really attached to called the Bible. Right? What is it? It's this fascinating thing. We're going to start this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, this very Uh, unique and important verse that God has given us in his scriptures. Um, But this is truly a unique book, and, and, and here is what the Bible says about itself. An interesting thing to think about. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this is actually a, a word that's only used in this verse. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's a unique word for a unique book. And, and as we're going through this this morning, I thought it was completely fitting and appropriate and even necessary. We haven't done this in a really long time, um, but we're going to hand Bibles out this morning. So if you uh, have joined us during the online season of life, this is a thing that we used to do, had to put it on hold for a while, but we can bring it back. I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible or the one on your phone, uh, to grab one of those this morning. We're actually going to spend a significant amount of time in a lengthy passage, and there's not going to be slides. So Bibles will be good this morning. But here's, here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's an invented word to try to describe what the Bible is. It's one word that in English we translate God breathed, 
breathed out by God, trying to get a sense of what exactly the Bible is, Paul, writing this letter, invents a word, combining a bunch of ideas that lead us to this concept of God's breath inspired the Bible. And so it's a a fascinating word for an interesting concept, but I was struck this week reading this verse that there's not more attention given to that word, and I think that's the point. We can spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is it? What is the Bible? How is it majestic? How is it different? How is it unique? We have this word, it's, it's God-breathed. It has something to do with the, the breath and the air and the words of God. But what I noticed in this, in this sentence, when trying to describe what the Bible is, that it doesn't spend more time unpacking that word, but it moves on. All scripture is God-breathed, and that is a miracle in and of itself. But the sentence keeps going and is profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The Bible is useful for multiple things. Without it, we are are incomplete. I gather that the Bible is God's gift for changing me and for changing you. The Bible is God's gift for changing me and changing you. And so I would like to honor what I believe is God's calling in this message um, to just simply spend some time with the Bible. There are a thousand verses that we could pick from. We could bounce all over the place. I would like to draw us to just one story that comes from the book of 2 Kings. Uh, So if you want to flip there with me, that's what I was talking about a couple minutes ago. We're going to be here for quite some time. 2 Kings chapter 22. And this is a very interesting story about the Bible itself. Uh, And if you're kind of thumbing there or maybe even looking for the table of contents and you're like, not sure I know a lot about 2 Kings 22, you're probably not alone in that. It is uh, one of, in my opinion, the most depressing books in all of the Bible. It's not very popular. If you do a sermon series on the book of 2 Kings, you got a couple good stories at the beginning, and then you feel like skipping the last 20 chapters. Because where we are in 2 Kings 22 is the real history of the people of Israel. Right, so God's people, if you remember way back in Genesis, God calls this man named Abraham, and the Old Testament is about his family and these people who would become the nation of Israel. You might have heard of Moses and the Exodus and the Red Sea. They've gone through a lot. Well, here we are in 2 Kings. They've already been chosen by God. They've already become a recognizable nation. They've already been led out of slavery. They are a country, and they're very bad at worshiping God really bad at it. And so first and second Kings is a very honest and sobering and a little bit depressing history about the people of Israel who had bad king after bad king after bad king after, I'm not kidding, decades and generations and a couple hundred years of bad kings. And it was a struggle. Things were not going well. Part of what happens 
is God brings punishment to remind them that he is their God and that they have fallen away from him through different wars and different attacks from neighboring countries. And so as we get to 2 Kings 22, we're just right in the middle of that bunch of bad kings. And in fact, this, this incredible thing, the temple where they would gather to worship God, this majestic structure has actually been destroyed. So their, their place of worship is gone. They're suffering under yet another bad ruler. And this man named Josiah enters the picture and actually becomes king at eight. Now, the reason you have an eight-year-old king is because you have a really messed up country, <laughs> right? People are getting, uh, they're, they're, they're vacating their position a little early due to an untimely exit. Let's put it that way. So we have an eight-year-old king, okay? Um, but his name is Josiah. And look how 2 Kings 22 starts describing Josiah. Verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adiah of Boscath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That is the, uh, this period of the Bible's way of describing a good king, and this particular portion of Israel, it's only done twice. There's two good kings and a bunch of bad ones. So we're reading about one of the good ones. This is Josiah. So I'm going to jump down to verse 8. What's happening is Josiah is actually helping to rebuild the temple. That thing I said was destroyed. All right, this, this incredible place. Imagine North Shore being flattened, right? But it was actually about three times this size. This incredible building where people from the whole nation were come to worship. It's been it's just been smashed from war. And Josiah is leading the rebuilding efforts. Got to get out the bad stones. Got to bring in new ones. And so verse 8, we start to read about what happens here. They're rebuilding the temple. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Those are just common phrases for things that we would understand to be the Bible, the book of the law, and the house of the Lord was the temple. So while rebuilding the temple, Hilkiah says, I have found the book of the law. Something very, very important happens here in verse 8. 2,500 years ago or so, this dude Hilkiah says something that many of you have probably said some uneventful morning while cleaning your room. Oh, hey, I found my Bible. This is, this is actually way more significant than when you or I find our Bible at home. First, the book of the law, the, the word of God, scriptures that they had at that time was very much lost. So if you think about what that means, there's a couple different um, definitions of lost. It could mean temporarily misplaced. It could mean lost as in somebody came and they took it from you, like they won the conquest and they took it away. In this context, lost very much means to find something that was once concealed. Its contents and whereabouts were before this moment unknown for a long period of time. 
And we see that in the way that this story is going to unfold. They keep sharing it with each other as if it's, as if it's new information. Like this book we just discovered is really interesting. This is not good. This means that the word of God was not living in the hearts and minds of the people of God. This means that the parents were not teaching their children how to follow the Lord. This means that the people were not at home studying the word of God for themselves. How are the children supposed to pass their Awana sections if there's no Bibles? So, verse 8, Hilkiah, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king, is verse 9, and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of lords. He's talking about how the repairs are going. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hokiah the priest has given me a book. There possibly no fewer, no, no bigger understatement. Hokiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Have you ever received news that just makes you respond physically? Emotionally, powerfully, the ability to hear words and it changes your very disposition in that moment. After reading the word of God, Josiah responds with alarm. Tearing of the clothes was, was a symbol of, of, uh, of fear or, or complete dismay or, or some very powerful emotion like that. And, and what we're seeing is Josiah, having read his Bible, realized that his life was not in line with God's word. And he was captivated. And so look at his response. We're in verse 12. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest... And Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now remember, this is a great guy. This is perhaps one of the best people in all of the country at this point. He's a good leader. The people like him. He's rebuilding the temple of God. He's providing fair compensation to his workers. And yet, when he reads the words of the living God and hears it with an open heart, he's, he's devastated. I am nowhere close to God's standard, he says. Josiah is a good guy in a world full of idiots. You ever felt like that? It's way too easy to compare ourselves to somebody else, to, to some very bad person, real or imaginary, and think, well, I'm doing really good. 
because I'm doing better than this over here. I've come a long way. I'm doing a lot of good things. I don't need to be fixed. If you're looking for an example of a guy who could say that, Josiah is a pretty good example. His whole uh, lineage of predecessors is terrible. Josiah could say, I'm, I'm doing great. He'd broken out of his family's destructive patterns. He was doing good things for other people. But it didn't matter because Josiah allowed Scripture to speak to him directly. And it impacted him powerfully. He did not apply it to other people. Not yet. Whatever the passage was that Josiah heard, he knew immediately that in his life there was sin and disalignment with God. And so we, we see what we saw, especially verse 13. We got to do something about it. Go, go inquire of God what all this means. Help me understand more of this. Now, side note here, for those of you who care, uh, what part of the Bible did Josiah have read to him at this point? There's, there's not a lot of options. We've got Genesis through Deuteronomy, maybe the book of Joshua. Point is, he's not reading the book of Romans He's not reading John 3.16. All of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. The Bible is God's gift to change me and to change you. So, Josiah hears the word and he's cut to the heart, both for himself and for his people. The second amazing thing that Josiah does is seen in the action he takes. So we're Americans. We're action-minded people. I am an action-minded person. This is an incredibly difficult example for, for me to sit with. We would expect Josiah, if, if this is his response, that something is not right, that God is angry, that what we're doing is wrong, that something needs to be changed, that he would step into that immediately. Go, rally the people. Create reform. Make changes. Make them listen. Read it. We want action. And what does Josiah do? He says, go, let's go talk to God. Verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me first and for the people and for all Judah. And so verse 14, we, we see how he does that. There's, there's someone that he knows. Hilkiah the priest and, and all the other guys, I'm getting tired of reading, uh, the wife of Shalom, a keeper of the wardrobe, they, oh, let's see, they found, they went to Huldah the prophetess. So Hilkiah sent um, all these guys on behalf of King Josiah and they found Huldah the prophetess. And they talked with her. They asked her what God wants. What's my next step? What does God require of me? And so Hulda responds. This is verse 15 of chapter 22. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, this says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and because you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought word back to the king. I am sorry if you were expecting a better word this morning, uh, but last week you got really optimistic, Scott, so I am here to balance things out. Um, But this is what is in Scripture for us, not the best news for the people. This is what First and Second Kings says at this point in Israel's history, that they have had chance after chance after chance after 400 years of chances and reminders and hardships and, and things that brought the minds of the people back to God and then away they went again and time after time and it seems that their punishment is arriving When God says, I will not allow you to sin throughout the whole world anymore. Something has to change. But we learn something amazing about God and how he responds to Josiah in particular. Right? But to the king of Judah, say to him, because your heart was penitent, you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said. When you tore your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you. Remember, Josiah is called a great king at the beginning of the chapter. And that list of what God admires might seem a little off. The powerful leadership qualities that Josiah displays in this pivotal chapter, he humbled himself, he ripped his robe, he cried, which are all active, visible signs of what God says that Josiah did. He responded in his heart. This is biblical repentance. It is by definition hearing the word of God, recognizing one's sin and shortcomings in light of God's perfect standards, and humbly responding by trying to align one's heart with God. Josiah gives us an example of one thing that the word of God accomplishes for any of us, which is to show the difference between us and God and and inspire us, move us, convict us to do something about that. 
And so it is only after repenting that Josiah gets to work. This is, I think, the correct example of, of, of what God's word does. It asks first, who are you in comparison with God's character? Is who you are, is your character like God's? It also asks, what will you do in comparison with God's will? His desire for justice, his desire for the things that are to be done on earth. And so in that, Josiah gets to work. So this actually has taken us now to 2 Kings chapter 23, but it's still the same story. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Probably not a, a church service that you'd be familiar with, um, but literally, Josiah gathers everybody he can, and they read the Bible together. And that was it. He said, we got to hear this. Now, notice at this point what has happened. God's word is contagious. So at this point, somebody found it. Hilkiah found it, read it, took it to another guy. Said, hey, check this book out. That guy read it took it to the king, said, hey, check this book out. Josiah read it, did a bunch of repentance. Then he took it to everybody. The Bible at this point has been discovered and it's been shared and it's been shared and it's been shared. God's word is contagious. He reads it before everybody. It has already caused repentance in Josiah and now he's going to try to bring that to everybody else he also, this is the beginning of community revival. Verse 3, 2 Kings 23. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and all the people joined in the covenant. Josiah stands before everyone and says, because of this Bible, I'm going to live differently, and I would love for you to join me. It's the beginning of community revival. Get everybody in on this. Uh, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. So if that is kind of confusing, there's a few things going on. There's some names of places in Israel uh, but there's also some names of false gods. So if there's a lot of words that seem new, that's what's happening. Um, but notice that the people go in to the temple of the Lord and they walk out with idols to false gods. 
things had gotten so bad that in their primary place of worship, in the church building, there were idols to false gods that people were worshiping. And they're going to clean it out. Because of God's word, people are moved to worship. And there's a lot of work to be done. There's some clearing out of wrong worship. But let's get to work getting rid of all these things. Notice, without the Bible, people had allowed these little gods so much into their lives that they just brought them to church with them, even left them there. Hey, I'm going to go to that building, but I'm going to, you know, I worship this or that or whatever. Community revival, it's contagious, it causes repentance. People are being moved to worship. I think all of this highlights that God's word demands a response. So we're going to stop there in the reading of of 2 Kings 23 because the rest of that chapter just continues to highlight how bad things had gotten. So we read just a little bit into the idols of the temple, but Josiah gets to work. He burns everything. Throughout the whole country, false idols, places of bad worship, things of detestable sacrifices, everywhere, Josiah's getting rid of it. And so if you get only one thing out of these two chapters, out of 2 Kings 22 and 2 Kings 23, if you get only one thing, because there's such a deep dive and there's so much and it's so powerful, here's the point. Somebody found the Bible and it changed everything. Everything. It changed what they did, what they thought, what they wore, how they acted, how they worshipped, how they lived with one another. It changed hearts, lives, careers, families, habits, and it started to change a nation. The Bible is not magnificent because it's magic. The Bible is magnificent because it changes things. The Bible is God's tool, God's gift for changing me and for changing you. I was at a church quite a few years ago, and in response to a question about what to do on a Sunday morning as part of the gathering, as part of this particular ministry, uh, there was a lead pastor who said, preaching the Bible primarily is like throwing rubber bullets at a submarine. It's not effective. That's a church bigger than North Shore right now. Led by a belief that preaching the Bible primarily is like throwing rubber bullets at a submarine. It's ineffective. God said four words and the universe sprang into existence. God breathed into dirt and it became the most complex creation in existence, human. Jesus said, cut it out. And a hurricane stopped. 
Jesus said, come here, and a dead guy started walking. Why then would this book, the living breath of God, be ineffective? This is not like holding the power of a rubber bullet. This is like holding the power of a nuclear bomb. Too many people have become content to let someone gently unfold it for a 30-minute period on a Sunday morning or to click like when it's wrapped in pretty colors on Instagram. This should not be a thing to be afraid of. This should be something that sets us up for ultimate success. This is an amazing gift if we use it, if we are in it. This is meant to wreck your world so you can wreck other people's world for Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean by that as we kind of leave Josiah and 2 Kings and, and come back to uh, the verse that we began with a little bit, 2 Timothy, and just the, the call for us today and for the church today. So I've said this a few times. What is the Bible for? Ch change. There are three changes that I see going on in, in just this little verse here in 2 Timothy. And, and these become our, our three exhortations. This is the last section on our notes. But, but three ways that God is, is um, calling us deeper. One is in just what we can know. So I'll actually back up a verse from what we have. This is uh, 2 Timothy 3:15. How from childhood you have become or you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Be in the word to know the things of God. This is about knowing the stuff of God. This is about my head. We see this in Josiah when he is exposed to new information and it changes him deeply, but he also says, I want to know more. And we've been given this in print form to know the things of God for ourselves. And the second change is uh, ourselves, our deep inward person. We, we, we usually refer to that as as. Uh, my heart, right? All of Scripture is breathed out by God, but specifically, this is what it accomplishes. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Be in the word to experience change. This changes who I am on a fundamental level. The Bible has the power to do that. We, we see that uh, in Josiah when he vows that he personally is going to live differently. Something's off between me and God, and, and I have to get to the bottom of this. And there's a third change going on in, in others. Um, I, I see this a couple verses later when Paul actually writes and, and, and tells Timothy to do this down in chapter four, verse two, preach the word, 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and teaching. So it's the same things. He's saying do that to others. There's a, there's a better, um, more clear, I think, verse for that, which comes from Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Let the word of God guide your interactions with others. Can you imagine if this place reflected that call in Colossians? Can you imagine if if in this place the word of Christ dwelled richly? I, uh, I called a guy this week um, whose wife was uh, experiencing some medical difficulty, uh, very significant, of, uh, unsure where it was headed. At the time I called, it was very bad, and they didn't know if it was getting better or worse. And so I called him to pray. We chatted for a little while, and then we prayed. And then he said to me on the phone, he said, Tyler, I believe, this is Hebrews 4.12. He said, I believe the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And I'm encouraged by that. And I'm also trying to believe that about prayer. But in that phone call to him, he brought the word back to me. And we spent some time with that, that the word was dwelling richly with him, and he was taking it with him. God is a God of language. We began that way this morning. We're ending with it here. God speaks, and he has created us to be like him. We are people of language. Whether we read it, write it, talk it, type it, think it or sing it, we use a lot of words. And God's goal is that our words would contain in them some of his own words. You get asked your opinion probably every day or advice. God has made perfectly available that your response can contain some of the awe-inspiring power that is in his words. Whether that's because you can quote the entire Bible, like Paul Lowell, or whether you can just reference what you're reading right now, the things of God's word that are on your mind, or whether that's just in conversation, the way that you speak reflects that you have a familiarity with the way that God speaks. There is creative, changing, incomparable power in the word of God. And in our conversations with one another, in the way that we speak and hear, let's unleash God's power in this place. God, we, we recognize that you are here in spirit. You are here among us. And you are here 
in this gift that you've left for us. And, and we ask that we would be people who handle your word well. Let us increase the amount that you are speaking to us uh, as we invite your words into our words. God, let the word change us. In your name we pray.